Jesus. Clicks, um, might as well turn your Bibles back to page 66. It's the Pew Bible, like the Exodus, because uh, that's what we'll be looking when we look at the Bible. So let's just have a look at that up now. That's bad influence. This movie's not there. Uh, folks, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for us as we engage with God's Word. Uh, so, uh, yeah, pray with me. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've spoken to us in the Bible. <coughs> Father, I want to pray today, uh, knowing uh, what's in this passage, that you would humble us before you, that we would be receptive uh, to you as you present yourself. And that ultimately we'd rejoice and glorify you for who you are and what you'll do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I am going to make this thing taller because that's, you know, all these tall people at the church. I'm going to start tall people church. You have to be over 5'11 to join. I'm still thinking feet. It's funny, isn't it? Um, folks, we've been doing the book of Exodus. Um, let's, um, let's just do a bit of revision for a minute. Let's get up to speed, right? Um, so it's easy to do with the map. So we've got, uh, I think it's here. Great. Um, so um, the book of Exodus, it starts out, Israel's crying out in slavery up in Egypt. Uh, they're being oppressed. Uh, Egypt is doing awful things. They're even killing their children in order to manage the population. Uh, and uh, they're crying out for help. Um, and Moses, we were introduced to basically as an Israelite fleeing <coughs> Egypt because he killed somebody and he had to run away. And so he gets married uh, down in Midian. Uh, he starts working for his father-in-law, looking after sheep, and God guides him to a spot near Mount Sinai, uh, at Mount Sinai really, or Mount Horeb, uh, where he meets God. God commissions him to go into Egypt and to see uh, the people of Israel released from Egypt. And this is going to be the biggest event in history for, for Israel as far as they're concerned. This is going to be the event where God, uh, in the eyes, before the eyes of the watching world, introduces himself to everyone. And they just go, who the heck nation has a God like that that can actually do that? Who can release the Israelite slaves from Egypt without even having armies? Because that's how all gods work. They just help your army fight better in battle. And if you've got the most strongest army, then surely your God's the best. But this God, uh, the burning bush, Moses finds out, this God is going to release those slaves uh, without them lifting a finger. God is going to be the conquering army. And so uh, Moses goes and gets permission from his father-in-law, it's probably a good idea, and uh, runs out to Egypt, and he starts doing these plagues, which uh, the power of God, which Stuart talked to us about last week. So there's, there's ten of those, we did nine last week. Um, they're pretty awful, really. Uh, there's, uh, it's, it's very telling when they've been killing their children. The first one is that the water of the Nile turns to blood because that's where they killed them. Uh, then they have pestilence of frogs, and then there's gnats or lice, and uh, then there's swarms of flies, then the animals get sick and die, then there's boils, then there's hail, then there's locusts, then there's darkness, and still the people aren't being released. Pharaoh just won't, won't have it uh, in the end. He won't let the people go, which is no surprise because it's exactly what God said to Moses would happen because it's actually a setup. Um, God's got all the cards in his hand. He knows what's going on. It's his plan. Uh, it's going to happen exactly as he wants to, it to happen. Now, what's the book of Exodus about? Uh, hopefully you're starting to get a big feel for that if you've heard some of the talks. Um, a big part of what the book of Exodus is about is God introducing himself. Really? What are you supposed to get out of it? A large part is that you will know God. Uh, I introduced this idea a couple of weeks ago. Everybody has in their head a God box, which is when I say God, what do you think of? It's kind of the collection of ideas, the... 
the, the thoughts, the concepts uh, that you associate with God. Who is God to you? You see, you fill the God box in your head with content. And God is actually saying in Exodus, get rid of all the stuff that I haven't said that's not me, you're just making it up. Get rid of all that stuff and know the things that are actually true about me. And so Moses meets him at the burning bush and God says, my name is Yahweh. Uh, basically means, I will be who I will be. Uh, what he's getting at is, uh, you will know me through my words and deeds. You want to know my reputation? Watch. Listen. I'm about to do some things that you'll, you'll get to know me. Just watch and listen. Listen to my words, watch my deeds, and you will get to know me. And last week we found out, basically, Yahweh is greater than the gods of Egypt, because plague after plague, the gods of Egypt are helpless, naturally enough, helpless, uh, to stop the God of all the earth uh, doing his will and showing the Egyptians who really is God. Today we're going to come across an idea, though, uh, that a lot of people don't like, uh, but it's absolutely essential, it's really, really important, and that's just the idea that God is the judge of all things. Uh, that is so countercultural today. Um, people are very happy with the idea that God is love, uh, but often what they mean by love is it doesn't have any force. It's kind of soft and vague, and just God sort of looks down the earth and likes pretty much everything he sees, and it's kind of soft, uh, you know, marshmallow God. Um, but whereas the Bible insists that God's the judge and people are answerable to him, these days we've rever reversed it. Um, we think we're the judge and God's answerable to us. I think that's where a society's at with thinking about God. Just think about people you might have talked to. People don't want to know who God is. What they want to do is say what they don't like about who God is. <laughs> uh, that's the thing with a lot of people I've talked to. They actually want to stand over God and say, but God doesn't do this, he isn't like this, therefore I don't like him, I judge him, he's awful. Uh, and it gets wackier than that, because I think we've actually moved beyond that. I think people these days, a lot of people these days, think that if God doesn't meet our criteria, then he mustn't exist. Well, it's actually a step beyond. So it's kind of like, it's, it's ridiculous when you actually label it. It's kind of like I say, look, I couldn't possibly believe that TV shows as awful as Neighbours and Having to Wait can exist. But lo and behold, I'll turn my TV on and there they will be, they exist regardless of whether I believe or accept them or not. But I keep, people keep saying, I could never believe in a God who, and take your pick, uh, who judges people, who has anything to do with hell, who punishes sin or... Any amount of moral issues, people don't like the Bible's stance on them. I can't believe in a God who's like that. He mustn't exist because he doesn't meet my standards. It's astonishing when you label it like that, isn't it? But I think it's fairly common. Uh, but it's, we just need to get back to the reverse of it. People say, I don't like your God. You say, well, that makes no difference about whether he's real or not. Maybe, I think he's a good God. Even if he's an evil God, if he's real, he's real. And he'll do his will. And I think sometimes you just need to start there and say, well, let's work out if he's real or not. Because if God's real and he's judged, well, one day you're going to turn TV on and say, no, I'm going to wait, it's worse than that. One day you're going to stand before him as judge and face the judge of all the earth, and that is the wrong time to work out that he's real and that he doesn't play by your standards. He's the God who defines everything. You need to meet him on his own terms. Uh, sometimes there's the Christian version of that view as well, though. There's, I think we're often uh, embarrassed about God's judgment. Uh, we want to minimise its importance. We want to feel the need to justify God's judgment or apologise for God as if he's not quite in the right here. Um, but we're just not in a position to judge. That's, that's what it means for God to be judged. And, and friends, the judgment of God is one of the most practical things, the most important teachings of Christianity. You can't get on with life in the real, big, wide world without it. Uh, it's hard to... Uh, realise that in a country like ours. Let's look at a couple of um, passages about what God says about his judgment. 
I'll give you an example of what I mean. This is what it says in Isaiah 11 about God's judgment. This is actually talking about Jesus. Uh, it says, He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or sight uh, by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness. So it's not just impressions. With righteousness, he will judge the needy with justice. He will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and the breath of his lips. He will slay the wicked and he will do that whether we like it or not. But he does it righteously. We can be thankful for that because he's going to do his will regardless. We're not in the position of power here. He does it righteously. He only does what is right, is what it says. What it means is, on the day of judgment, there will be absolutely nobody who will say, that is unfair, that is unjust. Uh, It's going to be so obvious that that's absurd that nobody will dare utter it. But passages like this don't make much sense to us in our society very often. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, God's anger, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. I think we don't feel the weight of that. That is an incredibly important part of Scripture, that God is judge and he will do it. Um, there's, a, there's a theologian, a Croatian theologian called Miroslav Volf. Uh, I want to read more of him because he, uh, he doesn't just think about forgiveness theoretically. He's been involved and seen awful things. Uh, he teaches Christians in war zones, who he has in the past, um, and he's seen firsthand just how important this is. And it, it's, it's really, it's heavy teaching. Uh, he says, look, in my audience, there's Christian people whose cities and villages have been burnt, plundered and leveled, uh, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, and, those fa- and whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Now, I want to teach them a Christian attitude of violence, which is don't retaliate. God is love. Just forgive them. He says, yeah, that's right. That's not adequate. In the big, wide world, what you need to tell these people is don't retaliate because God is judge. It's the most practical doctrine in the world. Don't be the judge, because God's the judge. It's not your place. You won't do it right. You won't do it justly. He will. Save it for him. (coughs) The nation of Egypt had enslaved Israel, set them to bitter labour, and even killed their children to keep them manageable. And now the judge of all the earth had come to visit them. Uh, we, we see God's judgment all through history. Uh, the word is death. Uh, it's, it seems kind of random, but it's in God's hand, the timing of that, and it can come at any time. But God's main act of judgment, his big act of judgment, waits until the end of history. At the, at the end of history, it says in uh, Hebrews 9.27, people are destined to die once, and after that to face judgment. That's the day at which people are hardened into their position. They're either with God or against God. Uh, there is no repentance to that point. You're on one of the sides already. You're hardened into your position in relation to God. Um, but the Bible gives two examples of two guys who appear to be hardened into their position before God before they die. Uh, those two guys we read in our Bible readings, they were Pharaoh, who appears to be hardened into his position before he dies, and Judas Iscariot, who even more clearly seems to be hardened into his position before he dies. He's the man who betrayed Jesus. Um, both have absolutely crucial roles to play in God's plan. But it's astonishing, uh, like, as in the Exodus can't happen without Pharaoh opposing it. The death of Jesus can't happen without a betrayer. They have crucial roles in God's plan. But God has the right to judge them, to harden them in their rejection of him, whilst they're still breathing, and that's what he does. Uh, it's pretty shocking. If you have a look at Exodus there, have a look at chapter 10, and this is what happened last week. So the last three plays in particular. Earlier it said Pharaoh hardened his heart against God. The last three in particular say God hardened Pharaoh's heart. He was the one who did it. Have a look at uh, chapter 10. 
And verse 20, there's an example. It's getting rid of the locust plague, and then the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go. The judgment of God is inescapable for Pharaoh at this point. God's going to do his will. Friends, fairness isn't the issue. I know we think, it's, it's something we need to get rid of in our heads, I think. We think it's only fair if everybody gets an equal chance to repent. Um, that's not fairness. Fairness is people getting what they deserve. And God will give Pharaoh what he deserves. He's under no obligation to give people anything else. Giving people the offer of mercy is always that. It's mercy. It's undeserved. It's unexpected. It's always a surprise. Giving people what they deserve is what he's going to do for Pharaoh. Plague 10 coming. And up to this point, the plagues have been grouped in uh, threes. Stuart, I think, talked about this last week. Uh, each of the plagues, you, you've got two plagues that are announced, and then there's like a nasty surprise that comes along. There's blood, there's frogs, they're announced, and then God just throws gnats in because it's unannounced. And then there's flies and there's livestock, and we just throw boils in as a, as a plague. And all along, Pharaoh's rejecting God, saying, you know, I'm not going to let these lights go. Okay, hail, locusts, darkness, unexpected, it happens. Um, and we pick up in um, chapter 10, 21, just the last plague there. I just want to point out something. Have a look at the beginning of chapter 11. And it says, now, it's actually a flashback for three verses. I just want you to notice this. It says, now the Lord said to Moses, had said to Moses, sorry, that's the whole point. This is previously, this is like in chapter 3 and chapter 7. He's keep on saying this thing to Moses. I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. It's always his will. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely, like forcibly remove Israel, not, not try and hold them. Um, Tell the people that men and women alike had asked their neighbours for articles of silver and gold. The Lord made the Egyptians favourably disposed toward the people, and Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So that's what's going to happen. He's, he's just pointing out that over and over again, God all along said this is what's going to happen. The last plague's going to happen, it's always his will. You're going to take their silver and gold with you because they're just going to give it to you. They're going to give their slaves their, their most valuable possessions. But it's just a continuous conversation from the end of chapter 10 to uh, chapter 11, verse 4. So let's just have a look at that together. Um, have a look down from, I'll just read from verse 21 so you get the whole thing. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky so darkness spreads over Egypt, darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky, and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or move about for three days. Yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, Go, worship the Lord, and your women and children may go with you. Only leave your flocks and herds behind. So he's got a condition. Moses says, No, you must allow us to have sacrifices and burnt offerings to present to the Lord our God. Our livestock too must go with us. Not a hoof is to be left behind. We have to use some of them in worshipping the Lord our God, and until we get there, we will not know what we are used to use to worship the Lord. Here it is. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. Pharaoh said, get out of my sight, make sure you don't appear before me again. The day, you see, uh, the day you see my face, you will die. Just as you say, don't you come, meet, come into my presence again. Just as you say, Moses replied, I'll never appear before you again, actually. It'll be Pharaoh summoning Moses, not the other way around at this point. It'll be Pharaoh saying, get these people out of here. Come back down to verse 4, the conversation continues. So Moses said, uh, this is what the Lord says. He adds it into the conversation before he leaves. About midnight, I'll go through Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, to the firstborn and so on. 
and so on. God the judge is coming to bring retribution on Egypt for the sins. It's, it's really symmetrical with what happened earlier. Uh, the book of Exodus starts out with Egypt murdering the sons of Israel. Now it would be the sons of Egypt mourned. Uh, and whereas we keep on hearing about the loud, loud cries of Israel in their suffering, well, have a look at chapter 11, verse 7. The Egyptians will be crying in verse 7, but among the Israelites not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you'll know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. The judgments come on Israel, retributions come for their, their deeds. Verse 8, all these officials of yours, they'll come, bowing, come to me bowing down before me and saying, go, you and all the people who follow you. So you've got Pharaoh's officials at this point. They've been more and more convinced, and now they're usurping the king of Egypt, saying, get out of here, please. We fear for our lives, and we certainly fear your God. The strength of Egypt is broken. If you remember last week when Stuart talked about the gods of Egypt, that's their strength. Any nation in those days, their strength was their gods. That's how you measure it. Uh, and so one by one, with all those uh, plagues that Moses performed, the gods of Egypt had debunked, <laughs> just shown to be nothing. Uh, but now we focus on the heart of what any competent set of gods has to do for its nation, which is protect the king, protect the royal line. Uh, that's the foundation of any kingdom. Uh, so it's not just a judgment on Pharaoh. It's a judgment on Pharaoh's gods. Come and look at chapter 12, verse 12. And you see how we sum up the whole thing here. It's about God showing he's the real God. It says, On the same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I'm the Lord. Those gods of Egypt are debunked, shown to be foolish, ridiculous things. The true and living God has come as judge. And then the passage gets really weird. The bit we skipped because they start talking about festivals and ceremonies and things. Do you notice that in chapter 12? We didn't read it before. They start talking about this festival called the Passover and the, the, the festival of unleavened bread. Um, it's really strange. We're going to talk about this really heavy stuff. Judgment is coming on Egypt. Here's how you need to do this ceremony, uh, generation after generation. You see, this event is foundational for the Israelis. They find their identity in this event. This is where God becomes their saviour who brings them salvation. And so he teaches them some new traditions, and I'll remember it forever. The first one's the Passover. Um, have a look at chapter 12, verses 1 to 2, and we'll read a little bit about the Passover and what it signified. The idea is that they'll, they'll remember this forever. They'll find their identity. They'll know their salvation is this God. Chapter, chapter 12, 1 to 2. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Just stop there for a sec. So Christians later have um, recognised the death and resurrection of Jesus as so central to all of history that we actually think about everything else in history in relation to it. So zero-ish is Jesus' birth, and we call stuff before it, before Christ, because, you know, in relation to Jesus, before Christ stuff, anno dominize the AD, means in the year of the Lord. So it's saying the stuff that comes after Jesus is in the year of his reign. And so we define all of history as Christians in relation to Jesus, because it's the central event of history. Israel, central event of their identity, of their history, is the Passover. This month is now the first month of the year. It's that important. That's, that's the significance of what's going on. Have a look at verse 3. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. Come down to verse 6. We'll skip that stuff. Um, take uh, care of them, this is the sheep, uh, until the fourteenth month of the fourteenth day of the month, sorry, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. 
Then they had to take, gross, some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they had to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made with that yeast. Uh, heard a youth leader tell me that uh, the way he does his youth talk for this, he's done it lots of times now, involves a soft toy, tomato ketchup and a knife. I'm looking forward to getting a youth group. No, maybe not. But it's, it's bloody as anything, isn't it? It's, it's a symbol of death. Uh, and there's a, there's a choice to be made here. Uh, you've got judgment of God is coming, and either the firstborn will die, or a substitute will die. God gave his people the opportunity to kill a lamb, paint the door frames with its blood, and death would pass them by, or pass over them. That's what they're remembering with the Passover. That's what's about to happen, happen to them. Uh, have a look at verse 13. It says, The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I, this is God, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Judgment passes by this house. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. The death of a substitute means that uh, God passes over that family. They're trusting in God's provision of mercy for them and he provides it. And God really early in the Bible, he wants to set up some really basic associations for us. If you've been a Christian for a while, it's not rocket science. If you haven't for long, maybe you don't realise. Three things. The punishment for sin is death. They've worked that out. Uh, the death of a substitute that God provides covers our sin. A substitute dying in our place covers sin. That concept's fairly straightforward if you're a Christian. has something to do with Jesus. Um, and with our sin covered, the judgment of God passes by us. We don't suffer it because it's been suffered by the substitute. Again, has something to do with Jesus. The other th- the thing they're learning is God is the judge of all things, but God is merciful. God saves through judgment. That is, he doesn't just save us from judgment. He saves us through it. The judgment falls on another. The second thing they're going to learn, uh, just quickly, these the second two, the festival of unleavened bread. Uh, they're leaving Egypt real quick, right? So they don't have time to bake bread with yeast in it because it has to rise. And so they, they, they do this ceremony where there's basically not leavened yeast anywhere in the houses or anywhere for a whole week, uh, remembering the day back to when they had to leave Egypt really quickly because Pharaoh's chucking them out because God saved them. The other thing is, when they get to Israel, this is in chapter 13, when they get to the Promised Land, the first thing they're going to do is kill lots more sheep one for each firstborn son of each family, to remind them again, God has saved us by providing a substitute so that we don't face his anger, we don't face his judgment, uh, ever. There's a few other things that mentioned in the passage there. They have bitter herbs, reminds them of the bitterness of their slavery that God saved them from. They use bread without yeast in, in, in the whole thing because they're just in a hurry to leave. Have a look at verse 11 there. Uh, I don't like the thought of eating this meal like this, but... This is how you eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. It kind of sounds like eating McDonald's on the way to work, basically. It's, eat this really quick, because you were in a rush. God is saving you in a rush. Remember the day where you got indigestion, because God saved you. Um, I just want you to notice something. How were people saved? It wasn't because they were Israelites. It was because they trusted what God gave the Israelites. Um, there's this strain all through Exodus. People are saved by hearing God's promise and trusting his provision. That's how all of them were saved. Uh, 
And we get the hint that some Egyptians are getting the picture too. Stuart mentioned this last week. So when the, the hail happened, that awful plague, um, there's a bunch of Egyptians who were, doing, who were taking God seriously. Back in chapter 9, verse 20, it says, Those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock inside, but those who ignored the word of the Lord left their slaves and livestock in the field. And so there's people listening to God. And we keep getting hints of this through it. And so by the time you come to chapter 12, and people leave, chapter 12, verse 33, just turn the page. Uh, it's not verse 33, it's 38, sorry. Further down. It says the Israelites leave, verse 38, many other people went up with them. And also large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. Other people are getting out of Egypt. It seems from this point on, there's Egyptians um, among Israel. People who have responded to God rightly and sought mercy in him. Because they, it's so obvious to them. The gods of Egypt are ridiculous. This God's the real God, this God's the judge, and this is the God that we will find mercy on. Thank you very much. And so in case you miss it at this point, Israel leave, the judgment comes, the firstborn die. Uh, Pharaoh summons Moses to order them to get the people go, get out. The people of Egypt say, get out. Everybody leaves. They take the best possessions of Egypt with them, and the war is over. Um, I call it a war on purpose. It's the weirdest war in history, but it's a war. Yahweh's defeated the gods of Egypt. We heard about that. But they keep on saying they plundered the Egyptians. Uh, they, they took their best possessions. It wasn't a plundering army taking things by force. It was, was Israelite housewives going to other houses and going, I'll take that and that, please. This is complete defeat, complete victory. And have a look at 1251. Keeps on using army language. On the very day the Lord brought the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions, by, in, in their armies. But what did the armies do? The armies consists of men, women and children who are carrying the possessions of Egypt, just going, I'll take that and that, and we're just going to leave now. And it's clear that the God of Israel has won this battle. Friends, when uh, Jesus rose from the dead, he taught his disciples that all of this is actually about him. And spent a long time teaching them it was all about him. Uh, you get hints of that very early on in the Bible. In, uh, sorry, in uh, the New Testament. John the Baptist introduced Jesus to the world. It was kind of what Moses did for Yahweh. John the Baptist uh, introduced Jesus to the world. Early on, he says, uh, the next day John saw Jesus coming towards him. He says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Who causes the sin of the world to pass over the world is what it's getting at. If you wanted to get more explicit, have a look at Exodus 12, 46 for a sec. And they start seeing... Um, the, the things that Exodus is talking about fulfilled in Jesus. Have a look at chapter um, 12, verse 46. And it says, talking about the Passover meal, it's, you eat the lamb, it says, It must be eaten inside the house. Take none of the meat outside the house. Do not break any of the bones. Which is an obscure detail until you come to the crucifixion of Jesus. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was a special Sabbath, a Passover actually. Um, of course the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses. This is when Jesus dying on the cross. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. These things happened so that scripture would be fulfilled, the verse we just read. Not one of his bones would be broken. Jesus is the Passover lamb. And if you doubt it, let's just make it really explicit. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. That's pretty obvious. That's pretty clear. 
what happens in Jesus is it's, it's the, the Old Testament, the Passover is just a picture of it. God is the judge; He's always been the judge, and I am an evildoer. Uh, I haven't done half the evil some other people have done, but I'm on that side of the fence. But Christ, our Passover Lamb, my Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. That's what it, that's what it says. What that means is God's judgment passes over me, passes by my account. So it's of no relevance to the final judgment. I stand, eternal death will never be a threat to me again because the Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So friends, trust the Passover lamb. It should be obvious. A lot of you have been Christians for a while. Friends, remember again, trust the Passover lamb. Have assurance. Judgment is scary. God will do what's right. He'll bring every deed into account. And regardless of what deeds are brought into account, you can say, and you must say, Christ, my Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. That's all the defense you need. And that's how God sees us in Christ. And friends, we're going to um, do something called the Lord's Supper today. Uh, it's a, Israel had a remembrance meal. We do too. Uh, in the Old Testament, the great act of salvation, the picture's going to be awful, but there you go, you're used to that. Uh, is the Passover when judgment passed by the blood-stained door, soaked doors, it's better, of Israel. Uh, in the New Testament, the death of Jesus is the Passover lamb that means judgment passes us by. And we, we both have a remembrance meal. Uh, they have, again, well, I know, I can't really, anyway, I had to do it in a hurry. They had a Passover meal. Keep having it. Have it every year. Remember, God saved you from judgment. Keep trusting him. We have a Passover meal as well. Well, kind of. The Lord's Supper, it's a remembrance meal. It's not exactly a Passover. But we recall uh, what God's done for us. And once again, we participate and continue participating in what Jesus has done for us. Having the anger of God against our sin pass us by, even though we don't deserve it. And it's a really big deal. It sums up everything about being a Christian. I want to make sure you understand what the Lord's Supper is about, because it's really what the Passover is about to us as Christians today. Um, let me go through this quickly. What are you supposed to think about when you have the Lord's Supper? Uh, you're supposed to think about three things. Here's me. I'm approaching the Lord's Supper, right? Look back, look around, look forward. Uh, we live in uh, a history of things that God has done to secure our salvation. I look back to the past, and I look back at the fact that Jesus, my Passover lamb, has been sacrificed and covered my sins, so the anger of God passes over me. Absolutely sure of that. Look back. Primary thing, look to Jesus. That's what we're remembering body and blood of Jesus. You also look around, because it's not me and my personal business with God. In fact, if you read 1 Corinthians 11, where it talks about the Lord's Supper a lot, and we're not going to go into it now, it says you need to recognise the body of Christ. And what it's primarily talking about is the family of God. The way it talks about body all the way through 1 Corinthians, the family of God, it's a family meal. We look around at God's family who we've united to. That's why when you have the service, it'll say, if you're in wrong standing with somebody, you should go and get reconciled before you have this family meal because it's about us being united together in Jesus. Look around. We also look forward because judgment with assurance has passed us by. And so we look forward not to a judgment with fear of condemnation, but we look forward to a future with Jesus' return to bring his kingdom and eternal bliss, which we will be part of forever if Christ has passed us over. And again, every time we have it, you can't help but be, keep being a Christian. It instills faith in you again. Jesus died for me. This is my family. Jesus is coming to bring us salvation. That's what we need to remember. That's what the Lord's Supper is about. Friends, God is judge. It means we don't judge him. He's also merciful, though. Uh, here's the paradox, though. 
Uh, fear of God the judge doesn't lead us to run away from the judge. Fear of the judge causes us to run to the judge to receive his salvation. That's what Christianity is about. Let's humbly come before God, who is our judge and our maker. Father, we thank you for the privilege of calling you Father, and we don't say so lightly. Uh, we, uh, we confess that we uh, assume far too easily that you are just soft and aren't a serious God correctly, is, is often the, the temptation to think that way. We want to acknowledge that you're the sovereign ruler of all, that you're in charge of all things, that you're greatly to be feared and that you're the just judge of all the earth. We want to thank you so much for providing a Passover lamb in Jesus. Thank you that in your mercy you give people what they don't deserve. You don't give us what we, what's fair, you give us what's unfair, that you take our sins upon yourself and get rid of them. Thank you so much for that. And thank you for the great hope of glory we have in Jesus. Please, Father, we want to ask that you would uh, save our friends, our family members that we know uh, that don't know you and that who we fear for knowing that you're the judge. Please prevent them receiving what they deserve. Please give them what they don't deserve in Jesus, namely salvation. And please bring them to a point where they bow the knee to Jesus, trust in him as the sacrifice for their sin and be saved. And Heavenly Father, and I also want to pray for our society which blasphemes your name daily and doesn't take you seriously and thinks it can judge you endlessly. Please have uh, the knowledge that you're the judge become clearer again as it has been in the past for other societies uh, so that people would fear you and seek salvation where it may be found. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen.